for so long, I think as adults, we've wagged the finger and said, kids are addicted and they can't put it down and they're obsessed with social media. We've never paused to examine our digital habits. 90% of Australian adults reach for their phone before their partner in the morning. And you do so much study around the relationship between the human and, and the impact of the digital society we're in and, and really trying to navigate that. We are not designed to go 24-7 and when we are living in a world that feels like we have to always be on, it has created the urgency fallacy. Microsoft released a report this year and they've coined a term that I think describes how most of us are feeling these days as knowledge workers, and that is that we're in a constant state of digital debt. 64% said they no longer have the time or energy to get their work done. If we are distracted, research consistently tells us it takes around 23 minutes and 15 seconds to get back into that deep focus state. Yet this is how knowledge workers are spending their days, being parentally distracted. Christy, how are you? Good. You? I am really good. I'm really good. I'm actually nervous about today's conversation a little oh, bit. Oh, in a good way, I hope. In a good way. <laughs> I, I, I'm worried that our discussion about <laughs> digital and its relationship with humans and even my own personal relationship with our friend the phone and all of this digital environment might be uh, a bit confronting for me, but um, I'll deal with it, I yeah. hope. You're going to be nice to me though. I am, and I'm, I'm also going to admit I'm, I don't live in any sort of digital utopia. I struggle with my phone use. We were just talking before. I do the revenge bedtime procrastination, you know, the next Netflix episode that goes into the next, that goes into the next, you know, the scrolling social media. So I don't have a handle on my tech habits all the time, even though this is what I research and speak about. Um, this is complicated. Good. Good. Okay. You make me feel okay. Good. So this, this particular discussion, I think for a lot of our audience, right, we've got um, a big bunch of entrepreneurs, business owners, business leaders. Yep. And I guess the the conversation here is, I guess, more of a trend, right? You know, that we want to be conscious of. And you do so much study around the relationship between the human and, and the impact of the digital society we're in and, and really trying to navigate that. And what I like about you, we've had a few chats, mm -hmm. you know, this whole I label you the pracademic, right? <laughs> the pracademic. What we want to make today is really practical. Um, yep. Look at, you know, probably story, but also what businesses can do, what we can do as an individual yep. to really navigate this and, and respect, um, I guess, the digital environment we're in, but get the most out of it without damaging ourselves, right? Absolutely. So maybe can you give us a bit of history? Why did you land here? Like, how did this all start? So to be perfectly honest with you, I didn't have a handle on my digital habits and behaviours. Um, I was a researcher in this space. I started off initially studying screen ages, so kids and teens and their digital usage. Um, and the irony isn't lost on me. I'd been asked by Apple to fly to Singapore to deliver a keynote on children's digital distraction and how technology was impacting kids and teens. And I landed back in Sydney and did what most people do at the baggage carousel and hurriedly pulled out my phone to, to check the barrage of messages and emails that I'd amassed since flying back. And I thought I'll triage those in the taxi ride home, fell asleep and got home. And at this stage, I only had two children. I've since acquired a third. Um, but at this stage, it was the first time I'd ever been away overnight. And I went for three nights. Um, and my son, Billy, had been left with my husband and, and mum. And I arrived home and I had really naively, ambitiously scheduled a work call during his expected nap time. Now, this was pre-Zoom and Teams. This was when we did Skype mm. work calls. Do you remember mm. the lag? Yes. 
Yes. You're slow, it was clunky. Yes. And even today, even with the more sophisticated video technologies, did you know one of the reasons we find video calls so exhausting is because when there is a 1.2 second lag between when I say something and you respond, and that happens all the time in Teams, mm. Zoom, mm. especially if you've got dodgy NBN. Yes. Um, there is a perception that what we've said has been misconstrued. They didn't like it. They didn't find it funny. I've offended somebody. So we can start to see how our technologies are having a huge impact on us. But I've deviated there. Um, so this was a, a Skype call I'd scheduled during my ex son's expected nap time. Now, because I'd been away, he decided he, there was no way he was having a nap. He was going to have extra mummy cuddles that day. So I opened the lid on my laptop to send one email to mm -hmm. cancel the work call. Mm -hmm. I I opened the lid on my laptop and the number, you know, that awful red icon you get, yes. and it's no accident they're red. Red is a psychological <laughs> trigger for urgency, importance, danger. I'd amassed a huge number of emails, over 100 emails since the airport um, and arriving home, and I, I, I literally went to just send the one, but I started to triage that avalanche of emails. And I became so digitally distracted that I wasn't watching Billy. He was about 15 months at the time. Mm -hmm. Billy fell face first off the lounge, mm. smashed his face, requiring urgent hospitalization. Still to this day, he's got a hideous scar on his lip. It's a really oh, concrete fella. reminder. Now I can hear you listeners gasping here. Um, just to make myself feel better and ease my mother's guilt, I will tell you he did the same thing two weeks prior when my husband was dutifully supervising him. So I'm suggesting that So my, he was a faller. He, he was a climber, oh, he's middle a climber. child, <laughs> name was Billy. Like what hope does he have? Um, he was ambitious. He was out to tackle the world. Um, so he fell from that lounge and I'm going to suggest he was just reopening an existing wound. But it was a moment in time where I thought, here I am researching and studying the impact that this is having on kids. But I had to turn the mirror on myself. And then I started to recognise this was an issue that all of us are grappling with. Whether you love it or loathe it, technology is here to stay. And it has its, it's crept into every crevice of our lives, professionally and personally. And it was at this juncture in time where I realised my tech habits were out of control and it had a really tangible, dire consequence on my son. So I started to recognise um, and my research broadened because for so long, I think as adults, we've wagged the finger and said, kids are addicted and they can't put it down and they're obsessed with social media. But we've never paused to examine our digital habits you know, 90% of Australian adults reach for their phone before their partner in the morning. Ah. Many of mm. us suffer from a condition called nomophobia, fear of not having our phone in close proximity. There is another condition called phantom vibration syndrome where we get that tingling feeling that our smartwatch or our phone is vibrating and yet it's nowhere near our body. I don't want to make eye contact you with, with this one, but research tells us that 40% of adults engage in a behaviour called toilet tweeting. Toilet tweeting. <laughs> Using your phone in the bathroom. We have become so digitally dependent. Yes. All of us. But for adults, we've often, I think, legitimised it under the guise of I need it for work or I, I'm responding to a message. And that is often the case. Yeah. But I think our tech habits have become so pervasive um, and they're having a profound impact on our well-being and performance, massive impacts in terms of productivity and lost productivity because of distractions and that was the moment in time for me to say, hang on, this is something I think we need to look at a broader level. Mm. So my research shifted and I started looking at the impact tech was having on all of us, particularly adults and knowledge workers. Uh, you're making me uh, cringe because I'm probably doing some of these things, right? Yeah. And there are people listening to this, I'm very confident are doing some of these things. 
and that's probably why you're studying it, right? It's, totally. it's, it's huge in society. So when, when you look at this problem, right, and, and maybe before we go into data or anything, what, what is your overarching theory around what yep. we should be doing about it, right? So is this a human responsibility piece? Is this is my responsibility. Is it something to do with the technology providers? Is it a social thing that we all have to just respect that it's happening? Or what is, what's going on here? I wish there was a really simple answer I could give you. It's multifaceted. At an individual level, I think we have to come up with some digital borders and boundaries. We have to determine how and where and when we're going to use technology. Um, I also think at an organisational level, and this is especially important if you're an entrepreneur with a team, even if it's not a large team, if you've got a cohort of people working with or for you, we have to get organisations to create what I call digital guardrails. We have to take the time to articulate what are our digital norms, practices and principles so that people can psychologically switch off from work. Mm -hmm. We are not machines. And even with machines, we give our machines more maintenance. They have downtime. We upgrade their operating systems. We service them. We often don't do the same thing for ourselves. So these guardrails, I think, are absolutely imperative, especially with these new ways of working, distributed teams, where we do need and have to use technology. I think we have to articulate those parameters I think we'll soon, we are, we will soon see legislation. We've seen it internationally around the right to disconnect. Um, the Victorian Police Force, the Australia, the Queensland Department of Education have already got clauses in their agreements around that right to disconnect. It's, okay, so I'm going to be. Go for it. Um, playing, a, you know, silly Brad being the common sense guy. No, Maybe, you know, when I look at all this technology and people listening to this will know, right, you have environments where they go back to back to back to back to back meetings, yep. all on Teams, and and frankly, like our business, we we do a lot of our consulting these yep. days virtually. Um, but there are simple things that sound like common sense to me from a leadership point of view. I know it doesn't get adopted everywhere, but you know, I might work on the weekend and I'll yep. send a message out, right? Yep. And I'll say, guys, you don't need to respond to it. I'm sending this in my time. Yep. Um, but, you know, because it's convenient to me. It's yep. not convenient to you to respond to and pick it up, but it's going to still land in their inbox. It's yep. still going to trigger them on the weekend because they carry their phone around. Um, so, yeah, so what, when you talk about these boundaries, I, my brain's clicking into boundary gear. Yep. Um, what what, does it, what do good boundaries look like? So you need to articulate what works for your team and organisation because all teams have different operational cadences. Some, And again, they're a guardrail, they're not a policy. And I'm really clear on that. There has to be flexibility. There has to be leeway. There are obviously contingencies. But often it's around, I, I, I call them formalising our tech expectations. What's an acceptable internal email response rate? And I often ask this in a workshop and we'll go around the room and some people, I give them a context so they all know what I'm talking about. The response varies from three minutes, three hours to three days. Mm -hmm. So actually articulating response rates. When do I use a Teams chat versus an email? How do we handle that question you asked about after hours communication? Um, is the onus on the sender to schedule it so that it only goes out between, you know, certainly if you want to work after hours, if you want to work on the weekend, by all means, if that works for you and it's not a red flag of exhaustion and burnout, then go for it. But do you schedule it so it only hits the receiver or is the onus on the receiver not to be checking after hours? Close 
closely related to that is teams have to establish a communication escalation plan so that if there is an urgent, time-sensitive, critical after-hours mode of communication, there's one channel through which that's communicated. And I often recommend a good old-fashioned phone call. The reason is I'm going to feel really guilty calling someone at 10 o'clock at night on a Wednesday. (laughs) So much easier for me to flick them a Teams message or a WhatsApp message or an email. Um, And there's also no ambiguity. Like I know if we've had a phone call, you have understood what I have said, you've listened, you know what the next step is to action it. In the digital space, we can, you know, we can misconstrue things. The emoji could be misinterpreted. You don't know unless you get a read receipt if they've actually read it, and then it can become, you know, the Chinese whispers passing information on. Well, it's interesting you say that because I, I see people go the other way. Yes. Right. And 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 part of their addiction to information is is to control the narrative. Yes. And to say, well, that person understands now because it's in writing. And if you think about a lot of business systems, they're all based on documenting processes because we can't trust people to do yeah. what they're supposed to do. But but go, if I go back to the conversation, I like that, right? It, 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 if, you know, when I started in work, you know, and I'm probably a middle generation of workers or an employer myself, um, at my age, you know, picking up the phone was normal. Yeah. Picking up the phone was just what you did. Um, then you're going to have people, I'd imagine, in, in a you know more native digital kind of upbringing. Yep. My kids and and you know people that are going into the workforce these days that just don't pick the phone up. Yep. I don't understand it personally, yep. but that's me being the old guy now, perhaps. Yep. You know, when you look at this split of demographics, and we're saying, well, phone calls might be reasonable. You know, these people may not even notice a problem with what we're doing at the moment. Yep. Like, what is the real problem? I think it is our inability to switch off. You know, we are not designed to go 24-7 and when we are living in a world that feels like we have to always be on, the problem with the online world is it has created the urgency fallacy. Part of this comes back to we have ancient Paleolithic brains. We have brains that were biologically designed to go and hunt, to go and forage and go and get information at a pace, at a cadence that used to work for us. However, we've swapped that. Today, information is constantly being thrust at us, alerts, notifications, pings and dings. So almost like the in soundtrack. a sprint mode. Absolutely. And our brain has not evolved to cope with that incessant, you know, digital onslaught that's coming towards us. So our brain can psychologically but not physiologically distinguish between a team's ping and a tiger chasing us. It says, oh, potential stressor or danger because something unsolicited came to me. And so I better check it. I better respond. So we create this urgency fallacy because in the online world, every single thing feels urgent and important. It was unsolicited. It came to me. It's in a red, often red notification bubble. There's a metric telling me how many more of those damn messages I haven't read as well. So there's a whole lot of persuasive design techniques that, that make us feel like everything is urgent and important. And when we are constantly operating at a frenetic pace, we are working against the way our brains and bodies are designed, what I call our human operating system, also referred to as our neurobiology. Unfortunately, as humans, we have a biological blueprint. We can't outperform it. We can't dodge it. We can't avoid it. We are just not designed to work constantly. I'm going to ask you a question. When do your best ideas come, Brad? Uh, Usually walking. Yep. Or when I've had 
what I call it my little flow state. So I have yeah. flow hours yep. where I might have um, an hour or two hours, yep. get a whiteboard and I just stand there yeah. and I think about things. Um, so, yeah, that's probably when the best ideas yeah. come together. Yeah. So I often ask this when I'm speaking to audiences, I ask them to ponder, when did, when did your latest ID germinate? Um, when did you solve a complex problem that you spent months agonising over? And no one in all the years of speaking have ever said to me in an Excel spreadsheet or in my inbox. <laughs> Most often people are saying exactly like you, walking, and I'll tell you the science behind why in a moment, showers, when mm -hmm. I'm driving, when I go on holidays with no Wi-Fi, mm -hmm. um, it used to be, not so much anymore these days, but when I used to fly, you yeah. know, you yeah. get on the Wi-Fi free flight. Yeah, just, yeah. yeah, we entered what neuroscientists call the default mode network. Our mm -hmm. mind used to meander. But today, unless we are intentional about carving out pockets of time where we can let our thoughts thoughts percolate, we very rarely have any pockets of white space in our day. Mm. So this is not an issue just for our well-being. I think we've, we've latched onto that. Being always on is going to impact your physical health, your mental well-being. But from a performance and productivity perspective, if we as entrepreneurs, as, as leaders, as thought leaders, if we are being paid for our intellect, we have to provide space for those ideas to germinate and mm. for creative thinking um, and ideation to occur. And if we're not clearer with those boundaries, we are devoid of those opportunities. You know, people order a coffee, they pull out their phone. They pull up at a red light, they pull out their phone. Mm. You get in an elevator, no one talks anymore. These are those, those pockets of time that we used to have to think. Can I just explain why our ideas come when we walk? Yes, I'd love to know that. So I, I, I geek out. Self-confessed nerd here. Yeah, no, um, this is geek zone. Like you can good. geek as much oh, as you, you want. I'm cool oh, with it. I'm in safe hands. Yeah, there's a few. There are a few geeks here listening. So I, I know some of our <laughs> listeners. They will like this. They will enjoy this. Well, I just think it, when you know the like when you understand why our brain and body operates, I think it helps you to to justify or be more intentional about why you should put in place what I call some of these micro habits. So when we walk, we turn off our prefrontal cortex. So that's the thinking part of our brain. It solves problems. It thinks logically. It's our working memory. Mm -hmm. um, when we walk, we also quieten our amygdala. Our amygdala is the emotional hub of our brain. We almost dampen it because when we walk, it creates optic flow. So images move past our eyes. It's the same thing when we're driving. Um, this quietening of the amygdala and the, pre, the shutting off of that prefrontal cortex gives our time that, that mind-wandering mode. We get mm. to daydream. Mm. Um, this is why it's reported Steve Jobs used to do a lot of walking meetings. So, again, simple micro habits. Try to find pockets of time to walk. We also need to do that because we are sitting for far more time than we ever have as humans. Mm -hmm. We're not designed to do that. Yeah, it's it's almost like we've intentionally designed, tried to achieve comfort, but in doing so, we're trying to oh. break. We're, we're inadvertently breaking ourselves. Is is this? Yes. This is. Is this absolutely what you're noticing? I'm, I'm going to encourage you. Um, try and get Paul Taylor. Um, if you haven't, Paul mm. Taylor has written a fabulous book called Death by Comfort. Mm -hmm. And Paul and I share a lot of the same sentiments. And that is that technology, I think, has made us as humans incredibly comfortable with being comfortable. Mm -hmm. I'm hot, I flick on the air conditioner. I'm cold, I, I grab the heater. I'm hungry, I order Uber Eats. Mm -hmm. I, I, we are living in an age of instant gratification. Mm -hmm. So now as humans, we are very, very rarely experiencing any physical stress. And when we are ill-equipped to deal with physical stress, we're most certainly ill-equipped to deal with psychological stress. 
we have lost our stress tolerance. Mm. This is why things like cold showers, ice baths, deliberate heat exposure are gaining such traction. There's such solid science behind that. Um, Absolutely, technology has made us just so comfortable. Um, And again, I'm not saying go out and seek stress. Like don't. (laughs) But as humans, we are actually biologically designed to cope with it. Well, arguably, we should seek stress, yeah, based on the science. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. I often say to people, a 30 to 60 second cold shower. So do it at the end of your warm shower. We know will give you a 250 to 500 percent increase in dopamine, serotonin, norepinephrine. They're fancy words for neurochemicals that make you feel really alert and really damn good. All of our human friends would know all of those Uh, ones. And there's no known legal substitute that will get you that high. Plenty of illegal substitutes, and I'm not going to talk about those. I'm not condoning those. Yes. it's a natural high. There's all, and again, like I love Huberman fan here. Mm-hmm. Um, he's on my intellectual free pass. That's <laughs> my husband. He's given me the nod. We're going to the opera house to see him next year together. That may not be the case after that. Well, so. Mr. Huberman, look out. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I want to do something a little bit different. So I have had my phone intentionally sitting here because I thought you're going to you're going to be here. Do you know how much that agitated me? <laughs> I know. Well, I, I kind of did it deliberately to see what you'd do because I have my notebook as well. And you can see you can still see that I handwrite things, which is love that strange. But well, it's not strange. It, no, works, it works for me. Well, do you know but we d- retain far more information when we handwrite compared to typing? Oh, I hundred percent. That's why yeah. I do it. Um, so good. So I'm just going to show you my screen. Oh, you notice a little red there, I right? Do. Oh, what, I- what does that tell you? Oh, that stresses me. Just the look of that. I can see your missed phone calls. Can you read that number? 1,474 1, missed phone calls. Ouch. That gives you all an insight into my life. Yeah. It's that digital. And what you're describing there is Microsoft released a report this year and they've coined a term that I think describes how most of us are feeling these days as knowledge workers, and that is that we're in a constant state of digital debt. Mm. Microsoft uh, suggested that of their research participants, 64% said they no longer have the time or energy to get their work done. 53% of their work is na- workday is now spent doing work about work. Teams chats, Mm -hmm. teams meetings, a mere 47% of their day is spent actually doing their work. This is why we are seeing they're calling it the triple productivity peak. So we used to see a productivity hump around coffee Mm o'clock, 10 to 11 in the morning, Mm -hmm. a second one around biscuit o'clock, 3 to 4 p.m. Guess when the third one's happening now for most knowledge workers? Oh, seven? No. Later? 10. 10 to 11. Okay. 28% of knowledge workers are working between 10 and 11. Sometimes people are saying it's it's a marker of more flexible work arrangements. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The more realistic answer to that is that it's a marker for exhaustion and burnout. People mm-hmm. are saying, I, I spend my entire day going, as you described before, back-to-back teams meetings, and I finally get some focused, deep work at night, and that's when I... Well, this is this is one of the complexities we're, we're dealing with as entrepreneurs. You know, I've got, I was just talking to a friend on the weekend who's got a great business and a very successful CEO, and he said, I've got a couple of tech guys in my team, these great coders, and they love working in the evening. They, in fact, they do some of their best work, as yep. you say, at that time that you yep. described, you know, maybe it's nine till one or two, some of them working crazy hours. For me, that's crazy hours. Yep. Then you've Likewise. got other, other members of the business that are 
um, fun, functioning well in our traditional business hours. Maybe they're arriving at eight, nine, yep. working through. So we've got this complexity around at the moment, uh, hybrid working. Mm-hmm. We've got complexity around people doing their best work. Yep. We've got complexity around collaboration. We've got complexity around using digital. You know, where does where do you oh. believe this leaves us? This uh, this excites me because I think this is the biggest opportunity we have been gifted and I acknowledge this is a privilege for knowledge workers. Mm. Frontline workers often don't have flexibility around their schedules mm. or their location. Totally. But for, I'm assuming, the bulk of your audience listening, mm. um, they do have a lot of locus of control over not only where they work but also when they work. Mm-hmm. The gift of the pandemic I think for knowledge workers is that we now do have far greater schedule flexibility. Mm-hmm. And this leads into what I think is the gift. And the gift is we can start to engineer, architect our days so that it suits what you've described and we call it our chronotype. I'm mm-hmm. sure your listeners would have heard with some of them. Yeah, have tell, heard. Us what it, tell us what you, the definition. Okay. Let me geek out here. So your chronotype is biologically determined. It's determined by something called your PER3 gene. Okay. Um, you cannot shift your chronotype, but it, it will shift throughout your lifespan. So you can't manipulate it. Okay. So we there's, there's a lot of conjecture amongst researchers at the moment, but the most common consensus is that there are three broad classifications of, of chronotypes. Most people um, are what we call bears. Their energy peaks usually between 10 a.m. and 3 p.m. Mm-hmm. The traditional workday, traditional office hours work quite nicely for mm-hmm. them. Mm-hmm. They are most focused and alert. That's their peak performance window during that time. A smaller proportion of people are, lou- are owls. So they fire on all cylinders at night. They are your teammates pinging you at 11 o'clock at night. They're your friends saying, let's go and watch the movies at 9.15. Mm-hmm. Then a very small proportion, roughly around 14%, are the early birds. They are the, the larks. They they fire on all cylinders early in the morning. Mm-hmm. They are your teammates who've done an F45 class, triaged their inbox and are sitting at their desk at 6.30 slurping on their green smoothie. <laughs> um, they are the people saying, let's have the 8 o'clock teams meeting. And your poor night owls are saying, my goodness, I'm not even awake at yeah, 8. Yeah. The trick is once you know your peak performance window, The trick is to build a fortress around your focus during that peak performance window. Mm -hmm. So try as best you can to eliminate as many distractions as you can so you can get that deep focused work done during your chronotype's peak period. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. A study by McKinsey and Co a couple of years ago found that most knowledge knowledge workers were only spending 5% of their workday doing their deep work in their most productive hours of the day. Interesting. They bumped it up to 20%, so the equivalent of one full-time day a week. What resulted in this study was a whopping 55% increase in productivity. Mm. Why? We're working with our biology. Our human operating system. Our human operating system is congruent with our digital operating system. But the trick there, again, and you never get a perfect model, and please don't think, you know, this is an example of saying, well, you know, email a client and say I'm only available for meetings before 4 a.m., 4 p.m., sorry, not 4 a.m., 4 p.m., I'm a night owl. Like we have to have some flexibility. But something that's worth doing, and I find this is the case especially with entrepreneurs um, and people who tend to work in startups Mm -hmm. in particular, ask your team, what what is your chronotype? Most people intuitively know. I have, ironically, an online assessment that will pinpoint it for you if you're not quite sure, and it gives you a customised report, how you can structure the cadence of your day. Um, But really importantly, 
figuring out what is the dominant chronotype in your team. And I usually find, not always, there's always the anomaly, but a lot of entrepreneurs tend to be early risers or they're the bears. Some of them are the night owls as well, especially more tech-oriented people, but that can sometimes be because of their blue light exposure mm-hmm. messing up with their circadian rhythm. Um, but generally, if you can figure out your dominant chronotype, why on earth would you be having a work-in-progress meeting if most of your team are bears at 10 o'clock in the morning? That should be reserved for peak performance time. That mm. should be for that deep time. So we can start as best we can to manipulate and, and shift things And this is the beauty of having more flexible work arrangements. This is also why those digital guardrails are imperative because if we do and we want people, like if I'm choosing to work at 11 o'clock at night because that works for me, my stage of life, my role, Mm -hmm. then we have to be really careful because otherwise we could potentially have teams working around the clock. So do we articulate in our guardrails call collaboration hours? Do we specify that between these hours you need to be responsive on Teams or Slack? You do need to be triaging your messages so we don't get bottlenecks in projects. But do we have an agreed upon set of business hours where you do schedule send if you are working after hours your Mm -hmm. messages? Mm -hmm. Um, I think we've got to come up with this, but we're figuring this out on the fly. Well, it's it's sensible, I guess, from a cultural point of view. You know, a lot of the conversations we have, in fact, the the conversation I had this morning, nearly all of the podcasts with business uh, founders and CEOs relate to the development of systems and culture yeah. that allow us to thrive. Yes. Now, this is this is just a dynamic of it that yeah. you're, you're saying this will allow us to function more productively. Yeah. You know, we talk about things about recognizing values or acknowledging yeah. people for good behavior. Yeah. This is about putting structure around how we can function at our best and be really conscious about who we are in that, right? Yeah. And I love what you said there. How do we function at our best? I think creating these guardrails and more intentional use of our our digital parameters is absolutely critical for two things. One, it's a well-being imperative. You know, if you want, you know, every part of our life is being shaped by our digital usage. Mm -hmm. We are more stressed and simple things we often don't recognise are making us stress. We are designed, I'm sure your listeners have heard Huberman talk about the importance of the physiological sigh. We should do it every five minutes. Mm-hmm. Um, it's our body's natural biological buffer to bring us back to a stress baseline, mm-hmm. regulate mm-hmm. our oxygen and carbon dioxide levels. Research tells us, however, that when we look at a screen, we do not sigh anywhere near as much. Why? We hold our breath. There's a condition that has been studied called email apnea. We go into our inboxes. <gasps> We hold our breath, we dump a whole lot of cortisol, our pupils dilate, our heart rate accelerates, and we just get that one email. You know, we've all got that one mm, sender yeah, that we yeah. oh. So we are breathing in different ways. That, that breathing pattern triggers a stress response in our brain. Staring at a small surface area, as we do when we look at our laptops and desktop for hours each day, again, mm biological trigger that our eyes converge when we're stressed. As humans, we're designed to look in the distance. We're designed for our eyes to dilate. Mm -hmm. So we certainly have to look at this from a well-being perspective. If we want our us as entrepreneurs and leaders to, to be at our peak performance, then we absolutely have to look at these rudimentary well-being pillars of performance. But the second piece of this, this is a productivity issue. Mm. You know, constantly triaging your inbox or splitting your attention, multitasking. Most people, Microsoft data tells us that most people in a Teams meeting are now either triaging their inbox or their Teams chat. 
we are not designed to multitask. We're constantly being distracted. Once we are distracted, so say we're doing some data analysis, mm -hmm. I've got my Excel spreadsheet up, I'm doing some complex data analysis, I'm in that state of flow, I'm doing that deep productive work and a calendar reminder pops up on my screen. I'm hoping your listeners don't have email notifications, but if you don't, please make sure you get rid of those. But however you're distracted, maybe you're back in the office and it's chatty Kathy that saddles up to your desk and interrupts you or talkative Tom. Yeah. We've all got one of those yeah, in our teams. Yeah. Or if we're working remotely and it's, you know, our, our partner on it, their team's call or the neighbour that starts the lawnmower at the most inconvenient time or if you've got kids, them yeah. interrupting you. Regardless of how we're interrupted, if we are distracted, research consistently tells us it takes around 23 minutes and 15 seconds to mm. get back into that deep focus state. Mm. It's called the resumption lag. Yet this is how knowledge workers are spending their days being perennially distracted. So it's that well-being piece. But I think the thing that I really appeals to entrepreneurs in particular is it's a productivity issue. Yeah, well, it's it's, it's 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 huge for me, and and like I think even if you're not an entrepreneur or you're not a business, yep. some people, it's just a human thing, you know, functioning totally. well. And, and I. I don't know if you notice this with some of the research or you, but there are people, and including myself, that are rejecting aspects of the traditional digital engagement, yep. right? That I, you know, I'm pushing away from. The great example is I, there are lots of people I don't respond to. I, can I know see that's that. terrible, no. but um, but you know, if if I don't know the phone number, yep. I, you will not get a call back, yep. right? Um, with my inbox, my inbox does not have uh, anything deleted from it, right? Why? Because I think organizing my mm. inbox yeah. is a process <laughs> that in itself that costs me time yeah. and it doesn't add a lot of value yeah. when I can use the search button. Totally. I agree. And I can find everything. I make sure I organize things by title or keyword yep. and it makes my life a lot easier. Yep. Now, that's just because the best place I can spend my time is not in front of a computer but yes. with people, yes. with customers, yeah. with my team. And when I know that and when I'm really conscious of where my where my time is best spent, it's usually not in front of a computer. Mm. And for most people, that, that's it's particularly for the audience listening to this, if you're in a leadership role or management role, it is not spent in front of a computer. There are functions and people that are professionals that that's their job and that's actually, you know, if I look at the typical accountant, I suspect they spend yeah. more than their time, yep. you know, in, in front of a computer and it's part of the, their life to be in front of Excel. But that's not. The role of a business owner. Mm. Um, so, do you see that some of your through your research that some categories of employment are more able to reject or at least manage this? Reject might be a strong word, yeah. but try and manage it um, in a way that's productive. Yes. So, when I speak to C-suite leaders or anyone in sort of a above a managerial position, when I talk about bulging inboxes, I get a very vague look. They've usually got a team member who's triaging their inboxes. So, there are distinct digital differences, and this is why when teams develop their digital guardrails, you need a cross section of team members to create these because if it's being driven by the leader or the leadership team, often they're unaware of the nuances, the operational cadences, the yeah. digital demands that face their employees. But this is an issue that we have to get on top of if we want to drive performance and our new ways of working. Mm -hmm. um, I am worried that this problem will become amplified in the coming years. Uh, if we think it's a problem now, I think once AI, the metaverse, all of those new technologies are embedded in our lives, this problem will become amplified. And let's face it, maybe we've got a handle on our workplace technologies, but we're spending an inordinate amount of our time 
on our phones. Research estimates that the average Australian adult will spend a whopping 17 years of their lifetime on their phone. You shared an interesting story with me before we came in about uh, the, a mother that you're, you're aware of. Mm. Um, and I wouldn't mind you sharing it just to, to really land that point. I will. It's, uh, there's a lot of people that um, probably would value hearing this one. Yeah. And when I share this story, this is not to make anyone feel guilty or ashamed. I think we all, if we all were deeply honest with ourselves, we all struggle with our digital usage, myself included. I often say my relationship with my phone is complicated. Um, it's a bit like the relationship I have with my husband. Hard to live with. Couldn't imagine living without it. I mean him. Um, and it's always turned on. <laughs> <laughs> I'll make it a bit funny before we go deep with this story. Love so. It. This mum shared this story a couple of years ago and gave me permission to share it um, after a seminar. And she said that her daughter um, came home from school one day and asked her mum, how much do you earn per hour, mum? Now, initially she thought, my daughter's ambitious. This is fabulous. She said, look, I don't know. I earn a salary. I'd have to calculate my hourly rate, but let me get back to you. She tucked her daughter into bed that night. And as she tucked her daughter into bed, she said to her daughter, I figured out my hourly rate. This is what it is. Why did you want to know? And she turned and she said to her mum, because I'd like to buy an hour of your time without your phone. I shared this story earlier today at a, at a conference. I was inundated with people who either physiologically responded like a gasp, rubbed their chests. I had people coming up at the end telling me they were in tears. I don't think there's any human who hasn't been touched by our, our digital habits being completely life-altering. We're all in various extents being impacted by this. My thing is that we have to take back our power. We have to take back control. We have to start using technology in ways that's congruent with how we're designed as humans. Mm -hmm. We have to make sure that we're using it in ways that's congruent with our human operating system. If we don't, technology has the potential to rob us of our two most important resources, our time and our attention. Mm -hmm. We are living in the attention economy. For years, we, we talked to a lot of leaders about what's a good predictor of somebody's success. And for years, we focused on IQ, redundant concept anymore. I think we'd all agree, not mm. necessarily a, a good predictor. In more recent times, we said, no, 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 it's somebody's EQ, their emotional intelligence. I think there's a skill that trumps both of those. The skill to cultivate in the 21st century, a skill we have to develop in our kids and, and people coming through universities is our FQ. I have to be very careful how I say that one because it sounds like I'm saying something yeah. else. FQ. Your focus quotient. Focus quotient, yeah. yeah. If you cannot orient, direct and control your attention, you will get lost in a world that has been engineered to be digitally distracting. Mm. This is a skill we all need to develop um, and it's one that if we don't, huge impact on and financial cost to organisations. It's interesting you say that because it's it you know, there's the digital distraction, but there's also the emotional distraction that comes with both digital and also all, all forms of life. Yeah. If I look at the average person and I, 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 you wonder where their time is spent, it's dwelling on something or spending Absolutely. time worrying about things or emotionally absorbed in something or it's it's our digital friends. So these two are pulling and pushing us all around. Our ability to focus on the things we actually want Um is interesting, right? Like in, yeah. in some respects, we're now getting to a culture, and I, this is my observation, yep. where we're trying to make it okay that that's what it is. Mm. You know, oh, well, 
you know, I have to be on the phone, like you said before, or, you know, well, so-and-so did that to me and that's really upset me. So mm -hmm. I'm going to sit here and talk about it for the next 35 mm -hmm. minutes. Um, now I'm not suggesting that either of them are not true, by the yep. way. I'm just, that's what we have to navigate. Yeah. Yeah. And I love that you pointed that out. I think there's three types of distractions. People can be distracting. Our thoughts can be distracting. And the overt form are digital distractions. And it's the interplay of all three of those. Um, this is why there's a lot of focus at the moment, pardon the pun, on um, psychological safety, like making sure that our employees feel like they're safe um, so that they can perform at an optimal level and obviously look after their well-being. Um, this is why, and I know we might deviate here, this is why I'm not a huge fan of phone bans in schools. You know, yes, you can remove the physical impediment that's the distraction, you can't stop the students sitting there thinking about how many views their YouTube clip got, who responded to their their DM, you know, how many social media vanity metrics they got on their latest TikTok mm -hmm. post. Mm -hmm. So, yes, we can remove the physical distraction, but we're not removing th that, that thinking distraction that's also a chief culprit. You used a term before. You said our human operating system, yep. um, you know, basically was was what we need to work towards and, and manage yep. right and you know I, i'm just going back to you know people know my age in a minute um but if i look at when i was younger i would use icq mm -hmm. and if you remember mm -hmm. that and had that oh mm -hmm. you know message and you hear it so and that gave me the little dopamine hit. Yep. but the whole point for me was that it was, it was accelerating my social sphere it was helping me connect with more yep. than one person Obviously, it was a bit fun at the time because yep. you could send pictures and chat to people and all sorts of things. But there's a lot of value in that, mm -hmm. right? Um, and then on the other side, you know, what I really loved about my childhood was we'd still go to the movies and we'd still go down and ride the bike. We'd still go to the football field or yep. whatever we need to do. And I, I'm that maybe I'm dumbing this down, but to me that felt at the time healthier yep. or, or as healthy as I could be. Um, now that was without any science. It was just yep. trying to be a human being, yep. knowing all you all you knew just by absorbing and observing. Yep. What does where does the human operating system function best knowing that there still is some digital there yep. uh, knowing that there are all these distractions where is it at its best i think we have to make sure that our tech habits and our kids tech habits too don't erode our most basic physical and psychological needs as humans we need to connect it's our most basic psychological driver this is why social media multiplayer video games group chats emails have become so popular they've tapped into our most basic psychological driver as humans to belong and, and to feel like we're part of a group. Mm. Um, we have to sleep. Um, again, our tech habits are having a huge impact, not only on how much sleep we're getting, but also the quality of sleep that we're getting. Blue light exposure in the 60 minutes before we go to sleep will obviously delay the onset of sleep, but we also now know it shrinks our deep and rim sleep phases. That's when memory consolidation occurs. Um, we need to be physically active. We're more sedentary than we've ever been. Um, most countries have recommendations for 150 to 180 minutes of zone two cardio per week. Mm -hmm. Now, a lot of people hit that target, which is great. And if you don't, can I implore you to do so? But the bad news is that if we are sedentary for more than five hours per day, those benefits we got from that zone two cardio are completely obliterated if we're sitting down. And many of us are. 
Um, so we've got to make sure that we're meeting those basic needs. Things like sunlight. Your Huberman fans would know a lot about. He talks about early morning sunlight. We also know many of us are not getting the, the recommended recommended 90 to 120 minutes. Researchers are arguing, but it's somewhere in that vicinity of natural sunlight exposure. This is why rates of myopia, nearsightedness, have gone through the roof in kids, teens and adults. Um, so sunlight. Um, what else have I, we've talked about? Connection. I'm testing if you've sleep. got digital dementia. Sleep. sleep. Movement. Movement. Sunlight. You know, basic things we talked before about breathing. Um, all of those fundamental things that we know that we need as humans. Now, a lot of people will argue and say, look, I am connecting when I'm chatting with my friends, you know, when we're sending each other DMs or funny memes on WhatsApp, I'm connecting. We know from, from research that Yes, it is a valid form of connection, but from a neurobiological perspective, when we engage in text-based communications, our brain produces cortisol, stress hormone. It's still perceived by our brain as a stress. Is it that we're looking at a narrow surface area? Is it that we're not breathing the same way? Possible. Um, we also know, in contrast, that when we're having a real face-to-face -face conversation, we produce oxytocin. Mm. If we'd done this on a Zoom or a Teams call or Riverside... Different totally different experience. Mm, and this mm. is why people find video meetings exhausting and distracting. Um, parts of our brain get activated in totally different ways when we're looking at a screen. You know, we're processing the redundant information. We're looking at ourselves on a Teams call. It's the very first time in history where we see what we look like in a social context. It would be like us walking in here today and putting a mirror in front of ourselves. They call it impression management. We sit when we're on a video call about 60 centimetres proximity from our screen. 60 centimetres is what social anthropologists call our intimate social distance. Mm. 60 centimetres is for cuddling, comforting, lovemaking, wrestling, tackling, all very similar types of activities. A bit too close for work, right? Absolutely. Yeah, like Bill from accounts or Mary from marketing or a client you've never met, they're in your intimate social I've distance. Never, I've never thought of it that way. That's it really is. interesting. Yeah. And then if you've only got, you know, when you have a one-to-one -one call and if you've got one of those mega monitors that I know a lot of entrepreneurs love or they might have six monitors, but if you've got one of those huge monitors and there's one participant and you've got your window maximised, their head is disproportionately large on the screen. Like our brain perceives all of these things as stressful and we haven't even talked about the background things that we have seen on Zoom meetings. I was on a, a call with a, a, a group of people, a client, early on in the pandemic. So everyone was still trying to figure mm. out Zoom and Teams and this particular client um, we'd had was a 7.30 briefing call and she was hosting the meeting, camera on, audio on, and she obviously hadn't briefed her partner that she was on an early morning video call. He came out, um, shall I say, rather excitedly uh, to greet her with her morning coffee, clothesless. <laughs> Instead of unmute, uh, muting herself, she left herself on mute and had the camera on and everybody could see and hear the flurry of activity behind, go away, I'm on a video call. So processing all the redundant information, when you've got a grid, you know, the Brady Bunch grid of faces, <laughs> that is so exhausting. At least that was funny. That was funny. That was a good one. It's given me fodder in my presentations. But we've all been there. Like, yeah, totally. We've all seen totally. things. When you uh, you said before at the start, Christy, that you, you know, because like, we're all just humans and we all totally. stuff up and we have yeah. these automatic kind of uh, responses to the way the world 
you know, triggers us or, or gets us to respond. And, and I guess the way our biology responds, but when, when you look at yourself and you audit yourself against those pieces before, yep. you know, you, you're not perfect, but you're working on it from what I gather. You're very conscious of it. Yep. Where are you, where are you strong and where do you find that oh, you're a little good bit question. weak? Oh, this is confronting. <laughs> um, I, I'm, as a working mum, I have to be so precious about m- the, my working hours. So I am really diligent about re- building a fortress around my focus. I am the early bird. So I naturally wake up between 4.30 and 5. My mum and my maternal grandparents were all early birds too. So mm-hmm. that's that genetic link, which makes sense. Um, so I fiercely ring fence my time in that early part of the day. So right. I get up tackle some of my deep work, try not unless I'm expecting something potentially time urgent in my inbox, try to avoid my inbox and I will nail some work, deep focused work for about an hour. Then I do some exercise, get my morning light, get all the happy endorphins, do the cold shower. Um, And then it's about structuring the cadence of my day so that it works with me. So I work in no more than 90 minute sprints Mm -hmm. because we have an old trading rhythm, which means that we will go through peaks and troughs roughly every 90 minutes. Mm -hmm. Um, It's another really simple thing. And I'm not always perfect at this. And on the days when I don't do this, it makes such a difference. Putting my phone somewhere where I can't see it when I try to get focused work done. Mm-hmm. A study from the University of Austin, Texas, told us that even if our phone was on silent and face down, if it's in our line of sight, it drops our cognitive performance by an estimated 10%. Mm. It's a brain drain. Mm-hmm. We are sitting there and and what happens with any sort of, um, again, it, say you've got, say you get an email alert and it dances on your screen and you just see the subject and the sender. Even if you don't click on it, even if you do not open it, even if it's something that just dances, you know, an alert notifying you on your phone. We have left something, Sophie Leroy coined this term, called attention residue. We've left a tiny fragment of our attention on that. And so that's processing in the background too. Mm -hmm. As people who want to perform at a high level, that's really detrimental to how we optimise how we work. How... Practically, and I'm sure you've seen yep. clients move through uh, an improvement. Yeah, right? there, you know, you, you, there are distractions that just happen. Hundred percent. You know, the, yep. the, you know, I might, uh, like you said, put your phone away or yep. the, turn the inbox piece off. But um, there are some realities that we do. Like, yep. so where, where are the, where's the give and take here? You know, in your opinion, around like what what level of distraction is probably normal as we move forward? What level of um, attention residue could would do you expect in normal day-to-day life without all of this going on? Yeah, so I think we need, and this is where technology can be a great tool, we need to cognitive offload some of the redundant things that we store in our memory. Mm-hmm. Um, we are processing, it's estimated the average adult is processing around 74 gigabytes of information a day, professionally and personally. The part of our brain that's the brain's hard drive called the hippocampus, it has not got any larger to accommodate that extra information. Mm-hmm. So we're forgetful. This is why we have, it is legitimately being studied, a phenomenon called digital dementia. We don't Mm. remember things like we used to. So when that that thought pops in, maybe it's not a digital distraction, but that thought, I haven't got back to that client on that. Have a, a, do you have a CRM? Do you have a project management tool? Do you have just a a document, you know, your notes app where you can quickly put those things to remember information? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. We are being, and especially entrepreneurs and leaders, you know, there's a flurry of thoughts and information coming our way off cognitive offload that, use the technology that we've got to help us remedy those. In terms of a prescriptive amount, I think it's it's 
hard. Mm-hmm. Um, but if we can, as best we can, have pockets of our day where we ring fence that deep focused work, but also e- as equally important, not in terms of duration, but have time where we can be idle with our thoughts, where we can go on a walk without our earpods in, yep. listening to a podcast at one and a half speed. Like we all do that all yes, the time. Yes. You know, make the last 10 minutes of your journey home without a screen. And, and again, not the entire thing, but if we can in, be intentional about carving out pockets of time to be more strategic about how we use technology and how we want to be distracted, um, I think we've bought into this false idea that we have to be contactable and responsive. It's the hyper-responsive culture. Mm. The online world creates something called the urgency fallacy. Everything in the digital world feels urgent and important. And it's not. Yeah. Like, yeah. This is one thing I'm really passionate about. Yeah. Urgent and important, right? Yeah. You know, to me, there's the mismanagement or mismeasure of mm. urgency all the time. I often ask people, is, is anyone going to die? Anyone gonna, you know, is anything going to happen really bad? And, and usually the, the fear is some sort of artificial deadline that yeah. could have been managed better, could yeah. have been planned better isn't managed or the there's complacency in all of the stuff that happens which created urgency which mm-hmm. means we didn't plan and prioritize in the first place yep. um or, or we just have this um you know this sense that it's it's urgent when in fact we just haven't really stood back and really assessed it mm. and i wonder um you know i wonder just broadly as you know when you've started to assess people is it is it, is it partly just who we are you know, mm. whether it was digital or whether it was some other mm. format of attention um, that we're, we're distracted by in our life, is it just part of who we are that they, these things are just hard for us to do? It is. We've, and this is the other thing too. Our attention spans are getting a bad rap and there's no denying they've shrunk. There's study after study. Um, Professor Gloria Mark is probably the global leader in this and um her research is really pioneering and saying our, our, there's no doubt our attention spans are shrinking. Mm-hmm. But the reality is, as humans, we've never had really long attention spans. We, mm-hmm. we never have. Mm-hmm. Um, we have attention spans that are designed to be distracted by the potential threat off on the horizon. Mm-hmm. Um, so we have, uh, going, I'm going back to, we've got these ancient brains. We have brains that were not designed to have information constantly being thrust at us. Mm-hmm. That's why we feel like we have to be urgent and responsive. When that team's email comes in, I've got to reply. Um, I think we've also created cultures, and this is where leaders play a really pivotal role at setting almost like the digital tone for their organisation. When you are sending emails at three o'clock on a Saturday, even though you don't expect a reply, it creates a snowball effect mm. because I don't want to, from an optics perspective, to be looking like the slack ass who isn't replying on Saturday afternoon when everybody else on the team is. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we've created something I call digital presenteeism, especially with distributed teams. When we were all in the office, you got a good gauge of who was there. Doesn't I, I'm cautious to say that was a measure of productivity because you can be in the office and doing diddly squat. Mm-hmm. But what's happened is because we're not always in the office, we want to be seen to be productive. So we will be responsive at 11 o'clock on a Tuesday night to the email and the team's chat. Mm. And because as humans, we are designed to be connected, mm-hmm. it goes against our grain not to reply. Even though we know we don't have to, we, we feel like we should. This is why we've seen a massive increase in virtual meetings because it is so easy to fire off a calendar invitation to 15 people 
to a meeting you would only have ever asked two people to attend. Mm. It's called the zero cost of inclusion. I can quickly type in a whole lot of names, over-invite people. Now, when it lands in my inbox, it's really hard for me to hit decline or no because it's going against that that psychological driver to connect and belong. Mm. This is where I'm excited about AI. You will soon be able to send, and you can in some platforms, send a bot in your replacement. That bot will take the most sophisticated notes. It will pop in your to-do list, actionable tasks you need to perform. You'll get a written transcript of everything that took place in the meeting so you can absorb the pertinent information. Mm-hmm. I'm excited. That's where I think the real potential of AI lies. Mm. So that scares me. Yeah. Because then I have to read it. Yes. And then reading requires me to have a stronger attention to detail, yeah. which I'm comfortable to on, on key key moments and key important points. But having a conversation with you, yeah. I, I feel like I'm able to read the situation and understand the nuance. Yeah. And reading, I don't get that nuance, right? Yeah. And so I think it, there's a lot of, that's an actual danger yeah. that comes with that. And again, maybe it's listening to the audio mm, on one audio. and a half yeah. speed. But the point is, yeah, there's, there's different ways to I be agree. present. I, I agree. I, I wonder, you, you've talked a bit about um, how people kind of tend to respond, right? Um, they tend to respond like they should respond. Mm-hmm. They tend to respond like, well, they've got to be there because someone, yeah. Jenny, who always responds on Saturday, keeps responding, right? Like yeah. at what point do people take personal accountability? Yeah, this is such a good question. So I'm working with some companies at the moment who are saying, we're not quite sure we want these digital guardrails because we want to champion flexibility. We want to champion people working with their chronotype. Will there be, and there's a lot of debate in this space, will these guardrails or heaven forbid if we get federal legislation around the right to disconnect, will they be prohibitive? Mm. And so it is a dance between, yes, I need to have personal responsibility. I need to have personal parameters. I need, I think individuals need their own digital guardrails. But there also is, I think, an organisation or a team's responsibility. Um, Again, depending on your seniority, um, depending on your role, again, that there's nuances with each role. If you're in a customer service role, then perhaps you do need to be communicating after hours. Um, If you're, you know, in PR, I'm sorry, but that's an inherent part of your your job, being responsive. I think it's clarity, right? It's it's our role as leaders and managers to to be, you know, I look at the pillar of yeah, but at the top you've got expectations, clarity yeah. on expectations. If people don't understand that's really yeah. hard, then then you've got the 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 skill yep. and and the motivation or the buy-in or behavior mm. to, to 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 lean into it. Now, for me, where I think the real breakdown occurs is when the expectation is articulated, it's clear. Um, we do have the skill, but that motivation change to say, well, the boss said I don't have to respond and he said it to me a few times, but you know what? I really think he wants me to respond because that's going to make me look proactive, right? Now that's your story. Yep. That's not the boss's story. Totally. Or the other end is the boss is lying to you. Yep. You know, it's that's quite black and right. But the point is there's I, I think that's a real dance that leadership and yep. management need to to navigate, um, particularly in larger structures. Once you start to get yes. um much bigger teams, you've totally. got people that are outside of your office, yep. there's you know, th- this is where that like, kind of mid-tier player business find it really difficult because they don't have the infrastructure, yes. they don't have a HR department, yep. they don't have this is a yep. lot of my client base who need more around this, yep. and it's just a bloody juggling act. Isn't it? 
And that's why I, I go back to the guardrails are in a, like they have to be team generated. You need buy-in from lots of stakeholders, um, but it's an agreement. It's not a policy. So it, it's sort of some parameters. And like when we go bowling and the 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 ball the ball veers off course, the, those guardrails are there to just nudge us back in and pop us. And so it, it can be a really good way. Um, to have some parameters. And again, the onus I still think lays on the individual. The legislation might be nice if you were in a workplace or an environment where those guardrails were never adhered to and there was possible jeopardisation of your role. Um, But we really, I I think those guardrails give us some, like it's almost like a safety net. Mm. The other thing I will say is, of course, we need leaders being good digital role models. And it's hard when you, you know, we forget to do the schedule send or maybe there is an urgent issue. Um, The other thing I think we've forgotten about is subtle ways that we reinforce behaviours too. Mm. So if we are rewarding, promoting, advancing people who are constantly exhausting themselves, working around the clock, burning themselves out, we are sending a very powerful message to our teams that this is a model for success. Absolutely. Um, And that's often the the case. And again, those unhealthy digital habits, even though we can say verbally they're not endorsed, they're subliminally being enforced Mm. and promoted. Well, I think it's particularly challenging in in more mature or established organisations who have a history and a legacy of that. You know, I do find one of of the things I love about startups and entrepreneurs and those that have built businesses mm. in the in the more modern context is they're really conscious of this. Yeah. And you can be really deliberate about hiring people that and, and creating behavior standards that sort of match that. And it doesn't mean it's perfect, but Absolutely. but when you've got people, you know, three generations in mm. or you know, old school, this is how I've always worked. You can't tell me otherwise and everyone's I'm gonna still be retained and employed. It's really hard to fire me. Yeah. And someone else over here says, Well, you told me that I was a nine to five and I'm leaving nine to five. Yeah. And Never will you see me past five oh five. That's 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 I think uh, in particularly large organisations a real uh, yeah. interesting uh, scenario. So I think all organisations are going through that cultural shift, right? Yeah. Um, organically because of the environment, because of the the nature of the digital environment yeah. and nature of what we need to perform. Yeah, and I think part of this too is we are slowly, and I will reiterate that word, really slowly moving out of the. We're still so attached to the industrialized model of productivity that the amount of hours that you work equates to what you produce or your output. We need to be focusing on outcomes, not output. As as knowledge workers living in a digital economy and digital world, we really need to shift the dialogue. It's not how many hours you work. Um, it's what you produce. It's the the IP you create. It's the solutions you solve for your clients. That's a really dichotomous way. I think, to be honest, we're still li- living predominantly in that hustle, grind, be busy. You know, ask anyone how they are today. Busy. Yeah, busy. Everyone's busy. Aren't they? Well, this is the point, right? The outcome-based, I think if you sat down and said to almost all leaders categorically, if you said, what would you prefer, outcome-based or time-based value? Yep. And they say, well, outcome. Yeah. Everyone understands it, but yep. it's very intimidating. Yeah. You know, I actually was having a conversation with my team just before, and we were talking about different hires we're making. Mm-hmm. And we're looking at incentive structures. Mm-hmm. And I said, well, the way I'd love it to work is you get $0 if, um, you know, you don't deliver yep. and you get all of your dollars yep. if you deliver, yep. right? Wouldn't that be lovely? And then, you know, in between, we'll find some other way where you are. It does, obviously, we can't be that black and white. But the point is, 
I think as a society, we have been so conditioned, as you say, to the yeah. industrial employee model. And um, those that are in, uh, that are attached to that buck against it and, mm-hmm. you know, to, to move to an outcome-based model is so radical, well, radical, but it, yeah. it makes complete sense, right? It it, but it relies on trust. Yes. It relies on um, the capacity to take ownership and accountability and responsibility, which yep. isn't everyone's strength. Yep. Um, and then it requires an ability to manage it differently. Yes. Right? It takes a whole different, I mean, this is why I think some of the startups have a massive, tremendous advantage because yep. they can set that tone very quickly yep. and be innovative around it rather than, you know, changing old ways. Yep. It's, it's sometimes, a, as uh, Pippa said to me, uh, who is on here from Ella Bache, mm-hmm. sometimes you're better off going around it and creating a more efficient path than yes. trying to change the Turn old down one. the old one, yeah, mm. yeah. What's, um, I guess, this has been really fun. Thank this you. Well, I really agree. Cool. You've stretched my thinking. <laughs> <laughs> and your phone has really triggered me. <laughs> Sorry. It's all right. It's all Sorry. good. It wasn't I'm intentional. I, th- it I thought you'd have fun with it. But, I did. Um, I did. <laughs> This is just a, uh, an unusual question. I, ho- I hope it's unusual. Go for it. If uh, you were to be able to have a degree of control of the technology ecosystem of the world, mm. remove one piece of technology that would have that would increase our productivity and make us a happier, healthier environment, which technology would you would you, would you remove? And this is it's no right or wrong. It's just I'd love to hear what you think. Well, as a speaker, I would say remove PowerPoint. Yeah. Death by PowerPoint. When you go to other conferences, I'm like, kill me. Yes. Um, But I'm going to say at a broader level, um, it would be email. I know a lot of people would like me to say social media. I think social media is a great way. I've I've made great connections. When you get to choose, like you curate your feed, I learn so much on social media. Um, I I, I like it, but I'm intentional about it. I've got some some boundaries. Yep. our young people don't necessarily have the same boundaries um, and there's a compare and despair phenomenon with our young people. Um, but Cal Newport, have you read Cal's book called A World Without Email? No, I haven't actually. So yeah. he's written, a lot of your listeners I'm sure are familiar with his Deep Work book. Mm-hmm. Um, he wrote a book a couple of years ago and it was called A World Without Email. Now, email was never designed to be our primary mode of communication. It really wasn't. And it is the Achilles heel still today for most knowledge workers. Mm -hmm. We've added other communication tools like Slack and Teams onto that as well. Mm -hmm. Um, But email creates ping pong, backwards and forwards communication. We we spend so much time on email that could have been far more productive had we done something synchronously. I think they pick up the phone. The number of people who I have a phone call with and say that was so much better than the, the ping pong of emails so for me i i controversially say emails um and cal's book has some really good tips in terms it's it's a big one and i don't think we're there yet but i think with the the project management tools and the collaboration tools that we've got we may be close to one day soon killing email hold me to that (laughs) good friend of mine steve and he's actually trying to remove email from his life at the moment so that's his his goal really but um I, I like it, you know. I uh, I think there's this attachment to it, you know. And um, we have a rule in our environment or our business, which is that email is for information provision yeah. only. Um, and uh, if there's anything, if there's a question to be asked, it has to be a transactional question. Which then, if it's complex, you get on the phone. Great. Now, that doesn't mean that's a great guardrail. Yeah. Really good yeah. expectation. Yeah. Now it does make look. Some people break the rules and get yeah. into some bad habits, and we have to work on that, but. You know, I know for some of my staff, 
um, in the past, they have found it hard. You know, mm-hmm. there's this massive bias to sending the email and not picking the phone yeah. up. Um, what do you think that, like, you've probably done a lot of research on this. Why do people, so, some people, there is clearly people that are avoid, they avoid the phone. What yeah. is it? I, I, I've got a theory and I've got a, a real concern with this that maybe in the generation that we're in now, there are certain in business environments that when you call, you you hit a very terrible, some mm-hmm. sort of process that, tells you to go back to some online environment. Yeah. We're so used to going to this online yeah. environment. You can't talk to a human, go to an online environment. You can't have this, oh, we don't have anyone working here on a weekend. Go to go online and send yeah. an email. So we have this kind of world that's pushing us back there anyway. Um, but, yeah, I love your your thoughts on that. So why are we, why are we? What are we, why are we afraid of a phone? You, you, uh, based on the evidence you've seen. I, yeah, I don't know if there's a, there's a truth in that, but that's my observation. Yeah. I don't know if I've dived much into the research. My hunch is that young people want instant gratification. So when I can fire off a message, I can very quickly see with the three dots if you're reading it and about to respond. Um, conversations are awkward. There, there's nuance. There's And we know, interestingly, um, we get far more out of phone calls than we do from video meetings. So unless you've got a reason to be on a video meeting, usually if there's multiple participants, we know we will pick up far more social cues when we are listening to someone just on the phone, not on a video meeting. Mm. Um, and we get rid of all the superfluous things like naked partners in the background as well on a phone call. Um, <laughs> or, or side chats going on in the chat. Yes. Yeah. Even, even on a video call, if my eyes dart to the side in a video call, we think something really sinister is going on. But in this room, we're in a, a room here, mm-hmm. um, my eyes have moved around the room. Yes. We don't intently look at a person. But no. when we stare eye to eye on a Zoom or a Teams meeting, it's exhausting for yeah, our brain. Totally. Um, why are we picking up the phone? Oh, aren't we picking up the phone? Um, I think it's a, just habit. Um, we've become accustomed, our young people in particular, Gen Z, have become accustomed to the DM, the short-form communication. It's the ability to use emojis very problematic. There's some legal cases at the moment where some emojis have been misconstrued. Um, There's a case, I forget what country, it's not here in Australia, but a a case where a deal was being done on WhatsApp. I'm working with a lot of organisations. I am blown away with the number of organisations who are doing big deals with large amounts of money over WhatsApp. This particular um, transaction involved a um, contractor um, sending, sorry, sorry, a a client asking for a quote. The um, provider sent the quote on WhatsApp. The other person gave them the thumbs up emoji. They misconstrued that that was a contractual agreement. That was, yes, please proceed. They proceeded to deliver the products in the contract, issued a a five-figure invoice to which the person said, I didn't approve. It's gone to court and the court has deemed that the thumbs-up emoji was giving consent. No. Yes. Really? Yep. Yep. So there's ambiguity text but you know in a text-based world just as much as there is phone calls but with phone calls it, it's it's uncomfortable at times there can be a pregnant pause I can't see how you are responding it's awkward um it's so foreign to our kids and to illustrate this my eldest son is 13 and he got out of the car the other day and crossed over the road and I leaned out the window and for those of you who are just listening, I did the old-fashioned signal where you put your hand like a banana up to your ear to say, call me. Yeah. And he looked at me and he's like, shuckers. <laughs> that afternoon I'm ringing him saying, where am I picking you up from? How come you didn't call me? And I said, I did this. 
He said, did what? He goes, I saw that. And he goes, I gave you Shucker's back, mum. It's just such a foreign world. Uh, like it, uh, it is, and yes. I think it, it's habitual. Yes. Like, what yeah. were you meant to do like that? I don't know. This is yeah, the point. Yeah. Like if people don't know what, to, I don't know what to do now. Like when you say the thumbs up emoji, like that to me, that's like, yeah, I got it. Yeah. Um, talk later. Yeah. Clearly we haven't done a deal. We don't, you haven't even sent me a contract. Well, you would have thought. Or you, yeah. you haven't um, potentially. Well, there was, a, I think there was a contract issued and the thumbs up emoji came up, but it wasn't a signed contract. Mm. But their argument was that that, but there's other cases where, other emojis have been misconstrued. So we have to be very careful. Some people are offended by certain emojis. Um, Erica Dwan, um, an American lady, has written Digital Body Language. Mm. She talks a lot about these nuances and things. And we're making them up on the fly. That's, you know, acronyms. I have valued the idea of the smiley face Yeah. when something might come across as, you know, you soften the blow, anti-smile. You? <laughs> you know, soften the blow with a smiley face. If it's anyone successful. gets emails from me with a smiley face, it's because I'd like to be happy. But yes, <laughs> it also could soften the blow. Yeah, um, I think it's nice. You know, yeah. you can you can be straight with people that tell Good. them you still love them. Good, yeah. I like it. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I've had a lot of fun, Christy. Likewise, it's been good. thank you. No thank worries. you. A robust conversation. Yes. So wrapping up, last question. Yep. Any any um, obvious tips that you would give out that you know quick wins that yep. we can we can take away. So first one, I would say figure out your chronotype. Try as best you can to try and operate in that peak performance window as best you can. Mm -hmm. And we can go online and get that from you. Yep, yep. Um, I'll give your listeners a discount. So in the show notes, feel free to share that. Yep. Um, my next one is manage your notifications. So mm -hmm. three golden rules with notifications. One, turn off non-essential. Two, bundle or batch them. You can now choose what time or times of the day you get your myriad of notifications. Mm -hmm. So as a mum who's got three sons who play way too many team sports, I'm in way too many WhatsApp groups. <laughs> they do my head in. So I've opted to get my WhatsApp notifications at eight o'clock at night when I'm hopefully in a better headspace to deal with the trivial information coming my way. Um, and three, create VIP lists and notifications. So when you put your phone on or your device on do not disturb mode, everybody gets blocked apart from those people. Is that a team member, a client? Is it your aging parents? Is it your kid's childcare or school? Mm -hmm. Is it your partner? Mm -hmm. um, so you can choose who gets to distract you. Um, and my last one, it would be to keep the first. So my first one, I've forgotten. <laughs> digital dementia. My, my my second one was managing your notifications. My first one was working with your chronotype. Yeah, your chronotype. My yeah. third one is to try to keep the first 15 minutes of the day tech-free. Okay. The reason is a bit like when you said you get your great ideas when you're walking, those first 15 minutes when we wake up, we enter the theta brain state. This mm -hmm. is often when a, an idea germinates, especially for entrepreneurs and, and leaders. Um, and if we bypass that state and we pick up our phone and we check the sports score, we check the weather, we check our emails, we not only trigger our stress response, but we bypass that theta brain state and we automatically activate the beta busy brain state. Mm. Research and we stay eight, in that state for a while. Well, we stay in that state for about eight minutes. It's not a long period of okay. time. It's sort of like a really golden window. Okay. Eight minutes. I say 15 just because I think it's an easier number to remember and a little bit more time won't hurt you. But if you can keep those first 15 minutes phone-free, it will have a profound impact on your immediate stress response and it will have a profound impact on that opportunity for those ideas to, to land. Christy, 
we have so much to think about, but it's it, that can all be implemented. <laughs> They're all easy wins, right? I hope so. So, um, but look, I think for everyone, I hope there was something in that. There were probably a few golden nuggets or a few little reminders or kick up the bottom um, through some of those ideas. That, uh, <laughs> Said with a smiley face. With a smiley end. face. So um, you put the smiley face, it makes it easier. Um, but everyone, you know, I, I think we're all touched by this and, and um, yeah. you know, certainly if you know, people to work, reach out to you for, uh, you're they're looking at their own culture or their yep. own business, they're welcome to do so. Um, but yeah, I've had a lot of fun. So Likewise, thank you, Christy. thank you. Thanks for the face-to-face -face chat. <laughs> <laughs> Not another video meeting. Yes, yes. Or well, you might be watching this on a, on a, on yeah. a digital device. So um, please continue to use your digital device yeah. for the right reasons, the totally. right distractions. 100%. All right, have thank a good you. day. Bye. You too.